Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. When you find that, if you would, stand with me for the public reading of God's Word. Genesis 3, 1, this is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be seated. While you're sitting, I'm gonna go ahead and just throw out another scripture for us from Genesis chapter two, verse 16. This is God speaking. He says, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. The serpent used God's command to deceive Eve into disobeying God. Notice the Bible tells us that it was the serpent that spoke to Eve. Many of us in telling this story, perhaps even to our children, might tell them that the Bible says Satan spoke to Eve and tricked her into eating the apple. Harmless? Well, Satan is called a serpent in the New Testament. We find this in both Revelation 12, Revelation 20, And Revelation also reminds us that the basic nature of Satan is being a deceiver and the author of destruction. And we all know that an apple is fruit, but the scripture says serpent and fruit. The point for today is we need to be careful that we don't rewrite God's word for our own benefit. The serpent here appears to be Satan having taken the form of a creature and choosing the craftiest of all the creatures through whom to do his work. The fact that Eve doesn't seem to be surprised or even suspicious that the creature spoke to her gives us some possibilities, we don't know. It could just be her lack of experience. It could just be that she was so innocent. It could be that she had not learned to be suspicious. The fact that God then curses the serpent to crawl on his belly would indicate that the serpent probably didn't have the appearance of a snake beforehand. Satan asked Eve if God really said she shouldn't eat from the tree. Eve then repeats what God had commanded her almost. The serpent then lies to Eve telling her that God was wrong that the fruit would not kill her, but that her eyes would be open and she would be like God. She would know good and evil. In telling this, Satan is telling a partial truth, which is perhaps the most dangerous sort of lie. 
Adam and Eve's eyes were open, but it was in a way that brought death and destruction into our world. The title for today's message was Spoken by the Serpent. Did God really say? Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for today. I pray that today that you will use this message, uh, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will communicate truth. Father, help us to be sensitive to the ways we can minister uh, to those who are going through tough times in our world today. Help us to be salt and to be light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Typically, at this point, we, we all have our method. I typically read a scripture, lay out context, add a message. But today, I brought a prop. This is my ultralight backpacking stool. I also use it as my ultralight disc golf stool. But as you can see, it is a three-legged stool. Now, on almost any other Sunday, I'd probably demonstrate it for you. If I do today, I could not get back up. So we're just going to leave it there. I can tell you from experience that on this stool, I need all three legs to support me. If you take one of them out, that's not pretty. And today I'd like to tell you that God's word is similar to my stool. Three legs. The first leg of God's word is inspiration. When we think about the beginnings of the Bible, what sets the Bible apart from another just really great book is the fact that the Bible is inspired, meaning that the text was breathed by the Spirit of God into man, the author, for us. If we look at 2 Timothy 3, the Bible says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That literally means God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. First leg, inspiration. Second leg, infallibility. Infallibility speaks to the authority and the enduring nature of the Bible. To be infallible means something is incapable of failing, incapable of making a mistake, incapable of being wrong. Therefore, God's word is permanently binding and cannot be broken. In John 10, Jesus is in a discussion with the religious elite, and he tells them that he is the son of God, and he quotes from Psalm 82, 6 to support his assertion that he is the son of God. And if we were to look in John 10, 34, Jesus in teaching the religious leaders, quoting from God's word says, holy scripture cannot be broken. God's word is truth. What God says is true. And we can't discard it just because we disagree with it, just because our society has redefined something if we do, we are, in effect, calling God a liar. In 1 Peter 1, 23, it teaches us that the word of the Lord endures forever. Therefore, the authority of God's word cannot be broken. Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said, One jot, one tittle will by no means pass away from the law until all is fulfilled. These passages speak of the Bible's infallibility. Inspiration infallibility, leg three, inerrancy. 
Inerrancy simply means the Bible is without error. It's the belief in the total truthfulness and reliability of God's word. Jesus said in John 17, 17, your word is truth. The inerrancy isn't just in the passages that speak about salvation, but it also applies to all the historical and scientific statements as well. It's not only accurate in matters of faith and practice, but it's accurate and without error regarding any statement, period. We find that in John three twelve, And we need to know that today, the world is attacking God's word. As followers of Christ, we must read, we must understand, we must live out God's word. And we must realize that the Bible will be misquoted. There's a need for followers of Christ to read, digest, live out God's word. We deal with this. We're dealing with this right now in our society. One example, Genesis 1.27. The Bible says God created male and female. I looked up Genesis 1.27 in every translation I could find. In every translation but one, it specifically said God created male and female. The one that didn't was the living Bible. And it said man and maid, as in maiden. Same thing. In none of those translations did I ever find the word other. There was not male, female, other. So our society is taking God's word and we redefine and we've added to God's word, basically calling God a liar. We're in direct opposition to God's word. So today I want us to look at some statements and have you decide, did God really say them? Are they in the Bible? Now, a few years ago, I stood right here and preached a message from Jeremiah 29, 11. It's a great verse, but it probably doesn't mean what we try to make it mean. And that was the gist of the sermon. And when it was over, one of our members came up and asked me to leave her verse alone. It was her life verse. It's on her refrigerator. It's on her car. And she did not like the sermon. Hopefully that doesn't happen today. I've chosen 10 phrases. That wasn't all I could think of. It was just seemed like a good number. And from the first service, most people who at least answered when I asked, how'd you do, scored around 60%. You'll do better. You're in the second service, right? So we put a little insert in. And there are 10 statements. The 10 statements we're going to look at today, did God really say? And you can go ahead and take the test if you want. Or you can follow along as I give the answers. And that way, you'll get 100%. I just want you to be successful. Did God really say? Is the phrase in the Bible? That's all we're looking at. Number one, escape by the skin of your teeth. Yes or no? Number two, a drop in the bucket. Circle. Number three, hate the sin, love the sinner. Number four, just one word, scapegoat. Number five, can a leopard change its spots? Number six, when God closes the door, he opens a window. 
Number seven, salt of the earth. Number eight, writings on the wall. When you smile, you give it away, you know. Number eight, God helps those who helps himself. And number 10, I think I missed the numbers. God never gives you more than you can handle. You get them? Did you do good? We're going to walk through these together and we'll answer them and he'll get mad. Maybe not. Number one, escape by the skin of your teeth. This is a yes. It's in the Bible. When a movie hero makes a narrow escape, barely avoiding death, we might say, well, he escaped by the skin of his teeth. You might be surprised to find that this saying is actually found in the book of Job. As you read the book of Job, you might be thinking, I don't think he even got by, by the skin of his teeth. But in Job 19.20, it says, I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Number two, a drop in the bucket. That's a yes. This is in the Bible. It's an idiom. It, it's, it means something that is small or insignificant. For example, one slice of pizza is a drop in the bucket to all the pizza our student ministry will consume in a year. Right? There you go. We find this phrase in Isaiah 40:15. Isaiah is describing the enormity of God. He tells us, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are considered as a speck of dust in the scales. So, drop in the bucket, yes. Number three, hate the sin, but love the sinner. This would be a no. It's not in the Bible. Some of you look surprised. The actual phrase is not in the Bible, but surely... We can all agree that God hates sin. And we know that God loves the world, John 3, 16. And the world is full of sinners. My fear is saying, hate the sin. It becomes just a trite saying. And we flippantly say it and we don't grasp God's hatred for sin the depths of God's hatred for sin. If we were to look at Psalm 5, 5 and 6, just open and look, listen to what it says. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Now, we could take this at face value out of context, just read that and add to it the fact that God is holy. He can't love evil. So we might could say God hates the sin and he hates the sinner. No, no, it wouldn't be right. Because one outstanding feature of the gospel is that in Christ, God who hated sin so much, so much more than we can comprehend, gave his only son as a sacrifice for our sin because he loved us. 
Jesus lived a sin-free life. He did not deserve to die, but he voluntarily gave up his life so our sins could be forgiven. As Christians, we're not to hate people. We're commanded to love people. And the very best way we can display God's love is when we encourage them to turn away from sin and turn toward God and believe in the gospel. So not in scripture, but there is some truth there. I know you think that was a trick. Number four, scapegoat. It's a yes. When things go wrong, sometimes those in leadership look for a scapegoat. An innocent person who can take the blame for the fall. Someone who can walk away in shame and disgrace so that they don't have to. This sticks pretty close to the English translations of the Bible. In the Old Testament, two goats were chosen. Not greatest of all time, but actual goats, animal. One was sacrificed. The other symbolically laid the sins of the people and released a go called the scapegoat. I didn't think this one would fool anybody, but I threw it in. Number five, can a, a leopard can't change his spots? It's a yes. It's in the Bible. In the world of music, from Porter Wagner and Elvis to The Roots and Blondie, multiple song lyrics, can a leopard change his spots? Supposedly, you are what you are. You know, just like a leopard can't change its spots, a person cannot change their nature. Well, God accused the Israelites of this. We find it in Jeremiah 13, God describing the sinful nature of his people. He maintains that they are stuck in their ways and they will not change just like a leopard and his spots. Well, this sets up another beautiful feature of the gospel. We can't change enough to get to heaven. Some of us have tried. We think I'll change. I'll be good enough for God. I'll stop doing. I'll start doing. You can't change enough. But God loves you anyway. And he can change you. Number six. When God closes the door, he opens a window. I like it when you smile and nod. This is a no. This is not in the Bible. It sounds like maybe it came from the story of Noah and the ark. You know, God shut the door and then opened a window so the dove could fly away. Not found in scripture. I've had well-meaning brothers and sisters Many times preceded by, you know, the Bible says, when God closes the door, he opens a window. And I think it was well-intended advice, but it's kind of biblically dishonest because sometimes God closes the door and the window, both. Sometimes God doesn't permit us to do what we want to do, to go where we want to go, to be who we want to be. In Romans 8, 38, Paul says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. What this reveals is that even when nothing goes our way, even when everything stands against us, when every door and every window is shut in our face, even if our life is taken from us, nothing can keep us from the love of God in Christ because he has conquered death. And as true as this is, as comforting as this should be, nowhere are we promised that if God closes a door, he will open a window. It's possible that every option will run out and we're left with nothing but Jesus. That'll always be enough. Thank you. I needed that. Number seven, salt of the earth. You're trying not to move now. Yes, this is in the Bible. When you say of someone, they're the salt of the earth, you're calling them a good person. You can count on them. They're dependable. They're honest. At least that's how we typically use the phrase today. In Matthew 5, 13, Jesus said that his followers would be the salt of the earth. He admonishes us not to be lazy, not to lose our flavor. We are to season the planet with the gospel. If we don't salt the earth, then we're basically not beneficial for the kingdom. It's a phrase we still use today, salt of the earth, but it is found in scripture. Number eight, writing is on the wall. Yes, this is in the Bible. You've heard it, probably said it, maybe during March Madness. You're watching your team. Well, writing's on the wall. They're not going to make it again this year. When you make a prediction of an obvious conclusion, you might say the writing's on the wall. But the origin of this phrase, it, ironically, it describes a situation that wasn't obvious to anyone. No one knew what the writing on the wall in Daniel 5 meant until God gave Daniel the interpretation that the kingdom would be taken away from the king. So it's in the Bible. It's a great story. You should read it. Daniel 5. I need to move on. Number nine, God helps those who help themselves. This is a no. This is not in the Bible. It's one of those often tossed, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. But if you ask, where? Where does it say it? They stammer, hesitations, five. It's in there. The saying is actually credited to Benjamin Franklin. To be truthful, it probably even shouldn't be used by Christians who believe the Bible is God's word because we are so far from being capable of helping ourselves. The Bible says we are helpless. On our own, we are spiritually dead. What this means is that God helps us when we can't help ourselves. In Ephesians 2, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. While we were helpless, hopeless sinners, Christ died for us. God helps the helpless. You may have heard this expression growing up. I, I know I did. It's, sometimes it's an admonishment for being lazy. Or you need to clean your room. God helps those who help themselves. Mom, what does that even mean? Or sometimes it's disguised as an encouragement to tell someone they need patience and faith. In layman terms, it implies that God will do his part if we in turn follow through on our end. God is going to be God. God is always going to do his part. At first glance, this expression, even though it's not found anywhere in scripture, it seems harmless. After all, what's wrong with the notion of a little self-reliance? The problem with God helps those who help themselves is that taken in the context of faith, it places the burden of salvation on us. Never God's intent. We're reminded again and again throughout scripture that as human beings, we are completely insufficient in the task of salvation. Salvation is not something that we were ever intended to accomplish on our own. And it is the free gift of God. If this weren't so, what would be the point of faith? Of faith in Christ. To say nothing of his sacrifice on our behalf. If there was anything we could do to achieve salvation, surely we would have done it by now. After all, Jesus was crucified over 2,000 years ago. The reason you haven't heard of a human solution of salvation in all that time is there is no other solution. It is by faith in the sacrifice of Christ that we are made right with God. Nothing more is expected of us. That's not just good news. That's great news. Number 10, God never gives you more than you can handle. It's not in the Bible. I know. Some of you are shocked. I say I know because since I've been here, 20 21 years, I've gone through some difficult days. I went from very healthy to could barely walk. I had a pulmonary embolism. I missed my daughter's graduation from college because of it. I had a total knee replacement and got a bacteria, extremely rare, lots of antibiotics. This past November, out of the blue, my baby sister passed. And I'm in the midst of 12 weeks non-weight bearing recovery from surgery. And I've had well-meaning brothers and sisters, church members, tell me not to worry. Because the Bible says, you know, say it with me. God won't put on you more than you can handle. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 starts with, But I would not have you to be ignorant. This wasn't a slam. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And if you heard all your life that the Bible says, God won't put on you more than you can handle, you probably believed it. It was good people, aunt, uncle, mom, dad, preacher. But today I want to remind you the importance of knowing God's word with this beautiful three-legged foundation so that when you give comfort to someone who's hurting, someone that's hurting, we can do so without causing any more damage. Let's look at how this could 
play out in your life. You have a friend who just lost his spouse. You want to help, so you look at him and say, just remember, God will not put on you more than you can handle. He'll probably nod. And your words will sound hollow to him because your friend just lost his forever love. He doesn't know what he's going to do. In a couple of weeks, bills will have to be paid and he's never paid the bills. He doesn't know how to pay the bills. He doesn't know where you pay the bills. In a couple of days, all the casseroles will be gone. All the dishes have to be washed and returned and he'll need something to eat and he doesn't cook. In a week or so, his clothes will be dirty and he doesn't know how to wash. She, she just did it. The funeral home will call wanting a big check and there isn't enough to cover it till the insurance checks come in months later. And he is home alone for the first time in years. And when he sits down, he hears the words, God will not put on you more than you can handle. And he wonders, what's wrong with me? He gets up and goes to the bathroom and gets a whiff of her perfume. He has a meltdown. Nobody's there. The kids call to check. He says he's fine. He's made himself a sandwich when he's about to go to bed. He ends up on the couch in a fetal position, wondering what is wrong with him. He decides he must not really be that close to God after all. If God isn't going to give him more than he can handle, then maybe God has made a mistake. Maybe you're tougher than this guy. Maybe you lift your head, stand tall, and tell everyone, including yourself, everything's fine. Can I tell you today that there may be times when you experience tragedy, hurt, pain, or crisis, and it may be more than you can handle. And that's okay. It's really okay. You may be tempted to blame God, to think it's all God's fault. Let me tell you today, just remind you today, that pain is a result of sin from our fallen world. Let me go back to that garden. Did God really say? Sin came in, death and destruction. When I hear this, God won't give you more than you can handle. I think surely the roots came from Scripture. And we could look at 1 Corinthians 13.10, where it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. This verse promises that God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So whenever you're tempted to cheat, steal, commit adultery, murder, you can say, God, that temptation was more than I can bear. I couldn't endure it because God always makes an escape from temptation. We shouldn't say, God put more temptation on me than I can bear because the Bible clearly says God doesn't tempt us. In James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
Ironically, I've rarely heard people use this scripture in the appropriate context. You know, when someone's facing temptation. Instead, it's usually misquoted in the midst of an emotional, physical, or spiritual crisis. And that can just lead to more heartache and more misunderstanding because we think something is wrong with our capacity to handle pain and pressure. We feel overwhelmed. When we look to see what the Bible teaches about pain, you should know suffering is part of the package. Most of us would agree that Paul was a true follower of Jesus. However, he often faced trouble and pressure so severe he couldn't face it alone. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help with your prayers. If we move on to 2 Corinthians 11, Paul, talking about the troubles that he faced, says, Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in dangers from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. We can look to Paul as an example of a spirit-filled Christian. Paul says, follow my example. And did Paul, our example, experience pressure beyond his ability to endure? Yes. He said so himself. Sometimes Christians hurt so deeply, it's, it's more than we can bear. If you're an old-time promise keeper, there was a speaker, Dr. Howard Hendricks, and he made this statement. I, I wrote it down. Sometimes life gets so tough, you don't just hit rock bottom. You crash through it. He gets it. There's no getting around it. It's not if, it's when. Because we will all have tough times. And when we're in there, it leads us to question, did God put this adversity on me? Is it God's fault? If we believe that God sends adversity and trouble in our lives, it makes us question the very nature of God. I would argue every page of the Bible shows that God is a loving father who has ultimate plans for his children and wants to walk with them daily. I'm a dad and I'm imperfect. Sure, you're not shocked by that. But even in that, I would never intentionally burden, burden my children with suffering. Our Megan in her 10th grade year had an entrapped nerve. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know what was happening, but 
Most nights I'd lay in her bed with her and Patty and she would cry out in pain. Many of those nights I begged the father to give me her pain. Let me have it. I, I, I can take it. She, she's not dealing with it. I would have taken it in a heartbeat. It hurt me so bad to see her hurt. I'm really not an award-winning dad. Now, I married way above the curve, but not much here, right? But I never wanted to hurt my children. And I understand the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 11, when he says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Holy Spirit is our comforter. The Holy Spirit is a third part of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit indwells God's children. God the Father is perfect. His love is boundless. So if trouble doesn't come from God, then where? I'd vote Satan, fallen world, fallen man. God doesn't put suffering on us, but he allows it to happen. Even so, God usually receives the blame for every disaster, for every accident. How many times when a senseless tragedy strikes, someone says, how could God let that happen? How many times has someone said, I can't believe in a God that would allow this to happen too? And you can put your own tragedy in there, but you get it. The reason sickness, natural disasters exist is because we're living in a fallen world. They're part of the consequences of our corporate sin back from the Garden of Eden. Suffering exists in our world the same way nuclear fallout exists after an atomic bomb. We all suffer fallout from the fall. When we look at suffering around us, sometimes we want to point our finger at God, scream and ask why. In a way, it's kind of like the person who smokes two packs of cigarettes every day for 20 years and gets lung cancer and says, God, how could you allow me to have lung cancer? Blame sin, blame Satan, blame bad choices, but don't blame God for putting trouble in your life because life's not fair. God is good. I believe that we are surrounded by people with broken hearts, broken hopes, broken homes, and they, all, they just want to know one thing. Why does God allow me to experience unbearable pain and pressure. We won't know for sure until we see Jesus, but I believe one of the reasons would be that God allows us to pass, pass the breaking point is because what that unbearable pain can teach us. Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians says, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will continue to deliver us as you help with your prayers. And this first one we see, we're gonna go through tough times, but we all see a responsibility for us to pray for those who are going through tough times. Our staff meets every Monday. We pray for you when we know you're going through a tough time. We sometimes write a card, sometimes pray, but we lift your name before the Lord. Paul this wasn't an ordinary run-of-the-mill emotional discomfort. He confessed it got so bad, he despaired even to death. His pain was so deep, 
He just knew he was going to die. I contacted my friend, Mr. Google. I searched with quotes. God, the Bible says God will not give you more than you can handle. And I let it run. Let her eat. Now I had to get past the first 10 or 12. But then it got me to those um, memory books from funeral homes. Hundreds. And it showed, just remember, the Bible says God will not put on you more than you can handle. One after another, after another, after another. People believe that that's from the Bible and that's what God says. I found a book by a pastor named David Dykes. He used this illustration. I want to share it with you today as we get ready to close. It was written by a struggling mother. Her exact entry in her words says names have been changed. We wouldn't have known them anyway. But it says, where do I start? I need a new place to live. I need a new job. I need to be able to support myself and the boys without counting on Rex, who is in self-destruct mode. Two tickets gone to warrant. His Mack truck unregistered for two years, probably on drugs, gray skin, wild eyes. People don't want to rent to a single mother with two boys and a cat. People don't want to rent to a woman with bad credit. People don't want to rent to a crisis magnet to summon the energy to look for yet another job, third in two years, to look for another home, third in two years, to look for other childcare, fifth in two years, is more than I can bear. She writes, the Bible says, God won't give you more than you can bear. Okay, God, I can't bear this, I need help. I cringe to think how many people just like this girl are out there they may be in your office. They may be in your neighborhood. They may be in your home. And they need to hear the truth, not a theological misquote. They need to know, you know, God does sometimes allow you to suffer more pressure than you can endure so that you will seek him. That's why the Bible says we are to bear one another's burdens so that we can fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. One way you show your love to others is to help carry their burdens. Show them how to get to the Lord. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. We wanna be whole. We don't like brokenness. However, to God, brokenness makes a vessel more useful. God uses broken things. A little boy brought his lunch, five loaves, two fish, gave them to Jesus. Jesus broke them and fed thousands. When Mary brought the spikenard, a perfume to anoint Jesus, the vessel had to be broken, the fragrance filled the room. The body of Jesus had to be broken before we could be forgiven. You need to be broken to be useful for the kingdom of God. Maybe broken to the point of not being able to bear it. So broken you can't hide it, shake it off, 
or pretend it isn't there. If you believe God won't put on you more than you can bear, then you probably can't allow the brokenness that you need to be a value for God to work in your life. If God didn't allow us unbearable pain, then we probably wouldn't ever seek after him at all. So are you still trying to tough it out? Get it together, get your chin up. Instead of trying to bear up under the overwhelming pressure, let it drive you to your knees. He may allow you more than you can bear, but it will never be more than you can bear with him. So why this sermon? Number one, we need to be reminded to read, understand, and embrace God's word. Number two, in January, Pastor Davin challenged us to read through the Bible in a year. You need to read God's word every day. You need to know the Bible says and what it doesn't say. You only know that by reading, hiding it in your heart. Number three, before you use the phrase, the Bible says, make sure you know the Bible really says it. Have an address. At least know the book. At least know the Old or New Testament. But for goodness sake, know if it's in there before you share it. Here's an example. You have a friend who's going through a very tough time. You can look at your friend and say, I'm sorry you're going through a tough time. You know, Jesus was preparing his disciples for something they couldn't overcome, his death. And he said, these things I've spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're gonna have trouble, but have courage, I've overcome the world. And in John 16, Jesus has given us a picture that just like the disciples, we're gonna have trouble. But our hope, our courage, comes from the fact that Jesus is an overcomer. You see, that's from God's word. Today, at the end, give you an opportunity to come and pray for somebody who is experiencing more than they can bear. I love y'all. I can look. And I prayed for you. I know some of the struggles you've gone through. And in the first service, I looked at people that fit this sermon. So I know that some of you, you're, you're right there. If you were honest, you would say, that's more. I can stand. Well, we want to pray for you. So there's no shame today in being broken, coming to the altar. Somebody will come pray with you. Pray for each other. We are to bear one another's burdens. If you're sitting there today and you're not a follower of Christ, today could be your day of salvation. We'll have a couple. Of, it takes me a while to get down there, okay? we got a couple of deacons that will be here. I'll eventually get there. But today, maybe you just need somebody to say, I'm ready. Maybe today's your day to join the church. Well, you can do all those things. Would you stand with me while we pray? Father God, I thank you for your word. Father, forgive us for all the times we've tried to rewrite, discredit, and misuse your word. Father, help us to know your word, to hide it in our hearts so that we won't sin against you and so that we can use it to encourage those who are struggling. Father, as we leave this week, help us to leave changed because we encountered you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.